What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 577 with my guest Zoe Friedman. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our brains from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist, not a doctor's office, more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Website for this show is metalpod.com. Metalpod, also the social media handles you can uh, follow us at. Let's dive into some uh, some surveys. This is uh, from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Drooler, and uh, she deals with bipolar, and she gives us a snapshot from her life. Coming down from a manic episode and keeping gobstoppers in my mouth to remind me to stop talking so much. God, that's fantastic. This is filled out by Aizu Chan, and... Uh, they write about their depression, like I'm petting a dog, but it's not a dog. It's a wolf, and it's eating me alive slowly. Oh, this is so good. About their OCD, like I can't bake a cake unless I'm watching it get baked. Oh, man, the way, the way you guys just sum these up sometimes is amazing. This is filled out by Sophia, and uh, she comes to us from Germany. And about her anxiety, she writes, like, I will be exposed and everyone will see the disgusting me. And about her anger issues, everyone always tells me how nice and smiley I am, but that facade is cracking, and my face looks constantly worried, and I have a poor me look, but the anger is there and wants to get out. Ah, oh, thank you for that. Oh, that that fucking mask, that fucking mask we we wear. Sometimes when I do videos of myself, maybe playing guitar or something, I'm just always shocked at the look that I have on my face. It's so serious, and uh, my girlfriend calls it uh, my Fuji face, which uh, is in Spanish slang for kind of like a sour, worried face. 
This is from a survey that I don't read very often. It's from the misophonia. Uh, for those of you that don't know, that it means sound sensitivity. And this is filled out uh, by a woman who calls herself Wet Noises Suck. Uh, what noises trigger you? Chewing, wet mouth sounds, and very high-pitched tinny sounds like low-quality phone speakers playing a low-quality recording. Also, too many sounds at once makes me freak out. Is your relationship with the person making the noise affecting, affected by their noises? I hate it regardless of whether I love the person, but it's probably worse with people I dislike. Are you comfortable telling people about your sound sensitivity? Yes, but only when it comes up in conversation. I feel uncomfortable telling them when they're actually causing the issue in the moment. I'd rather remove myself from the situation. Have the reactions, what have the reactions been when you've told people? In conversation, people either find it interesting or their eyes make uh, a wide me too reaction. If I've had to tell someone because they were bothering me, they're embarrassed, which makes me feel horrible. Do you have other sen sensory sensitivities? Yes, I can't handle flashing lights. It makes me angry. Labels on clothes, the feeling of my own hands. They have to be squeaky clean or I want to rip my skin off. Food taste doesn't bother me, but food texture does. And this this survey, by the way, uh, was constructed with the help uh, of somebody who struggles with the misophonia because they they suggested a lot of questions to, to add to the survey that I would have never uh, thought of. Uh, have you ever struggled with food issues? Yes. Texture. I don't like the texture of something like oats or mash. My 32-year-old ass will gag it back out of my mouth even if I could eat it last week. I also forget to eat a lot. Uh, how long have you had misophonia? Always. How many times a day do you get triggered? At the moment, never since I work from home. In general, though, quite a few times a day, especially on tr public transport. Do you feel guilty about your triggers or the way you respond to them? No, I've learned not to scream or freak out, so I just remove myself from the situation. And I'm very polite if I have to ask for something to be turned down or have to leave the room. I've also just started blocking my ears if I have to. I don't care what people think. Have you been diagnosed with a mental or physical uh, health disorder or issue? And if so, do you believe it's connected to your misophonia? ADHD, exclamation point. I'm convinced that they're closely intertwined. Do you have a history of trauma or emotionally disinterested slash unavailable parents? Yes, abusive parents. My dad was verbally, physically, and emotionally abusive. My mother as well, but less so. She protected us from my dad by locking us in bathrooms and standing in front of the door, but she was also abusive. She was emotionally stunted and completely unavailable. After my parents got divorced, she had a new partner who was also abusive. She didn't protect us from him, and I think that lack of protection was the most traumatic thing, even worse than my childhood sexual abuse. Did you ever experience trauma to the ear, for instance, a loud sound prior to the onset of your misophonia? I don't think so. Have you tried any kind of therapy, medication, or tools for it? I got occupational therapy for my SPD as a child. Apparently, it was much worse when I was younger. I just developed coping mechanisms myself. Deep breathing, or I just leave. And I always have noise-canceling headphones. Thank you for that. 
this is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, uh, figure, filled out by a woman who calls herself Megan, a.k.a. Starving Artist, and she writes, You've mentioned that you stopped having a relationship with your mother. My question is, what was your final straw with her? How did she respond to your new boundaries, and how do you disconnect from those feelings uh, when you truly just miss the presence of having that parent role in your life? Well, those are all really really big questions. Um, I think the final straw was um, I had taken a break from our relationship for maybe a year and a half and I thought, you know, I'll try just kind of easing back into it by keeping it to letter writing. And I said, you know, I, I don't want to talk about the past. And I think people out there who've had... Um, an issue with a with a, a parent that doesn't respect boundaries is it's 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 like trying to pin down an arm of an octopus. It's like you get one thing, feel like you're making progress, and then there's seven other arms coming at you. And so, she respected that boundary for about uh, the first letter or two. But honestly, I think the moment was a couple of years before that when. We were disagreeing about something and she wouldn't let it go. And I just, you know, I just kind of said, can we just please stop talking about this? And um, and I'm sorry if I've talked about this a lot on the podcast. I feel like I'm repeating myself. But um, all of a sudden she wanted to read like some spiritual literature together. And I, you know, and I couldn't just turn that switch on. I was still kind of upset from the argument that we'd been having and uh and I said mom I know you want to have a closer relationship with me but honestly a lot of the times I don't feel safe around you and she had no interest in that statement didn't want to know why didn't want me to elaborate just kind of looked through me and I and that was that was honestly a turning point because it's it's like that told me a lot so I, I think it was more just the buildup of a of a ton of different instances of just not feeling seen and respected and 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 I just got I just couldn't I had to I had to save myself uh, you know as it were and as far as disconnecting from the feeling of missing the presence of having that parent in my life that wasn't difficult because I think if I'm going to be really honest, the majority of my relationship with her was not positive. There were positive moments sprinkled in there, and I have never felt like she's a bad person. I've just felt like she's a sick person who is just too overwhelming for me to be able to handle a relationship with. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, and apologies to anybody who's heard me say that for the 400th time. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Crazy Cat Person and uh, about being the, the vic- victim of uh, incest and sexual trauma. And they write, uh, ha- trying to have a sexuality uh, after that It's like trying to piece together a broken mirror, not knowing who's staring back at you, disconnected and disfigured. Wow. 
snapshot from their life, getting triggered when my loving partner wants to tongue kiss, yet later spend hours compulsively masturbating, watching violent, humiliating hentai. Thank you for sharing that. That is heavy. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Lady Fake Name. Ooh, I bid thee adieu. About her PTSD, uh, she has a snapshot from her life. I'm 16, hiding in the pantry, watching my dad choking my mother. When he smashes a glass again, I feel fear that transports me away. Everything is in slow motion. If he catches me here, he'll start whipping that belt, which is an infinitely worse sound. And about her PTSD, if someone drops a glass, it feels like electricity shoots through my body and I'm jolted into a nightmare zone. My eyes go wide and I hyperventilate. What a bad trip. Thank you for sharing that. This is also from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out, <laughs> filled out by a woman who calls herself My Entire Self-Esteem Rides on Paul Laughing at the Name I Chose. Well, mission accomplished. Um, about her anxiety, taking photos of my bloody cuticles as evidence of my skin picking because I fear that when I finally see a psychiatrist, they won't believe me and I want to have proof. About her OCD, if the last thing I say to you isn't I love you, you will surely die. My God. And about her intrusive thoughts. Having intrusive thoughts is like the mental equivalent of those pop-up ads on porn sites. Oh my God, those are so good. Thank you for those. We are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp.com Online Therapy. Uh, I'm a big fan. Uh, my session this week with uh, with my therapist, Heidi, uh, the topic of anger uh, came up, and one of the things that she said, which I definitely agree with, is that anger is usually the tip of some type of iceberg, and underneath that iceberg, underneath the water, are usually feelings that we either are having, don't want to feel, don't want to acknowledge, or can't consciously access. And she gave me this thing uh, with the list of, of some of the feelings that can be underneath anger like sadness disappointment loneliness pain frustration anxiety guilt jealousy shame uh it's so good if if you guys are interested in uh trying online therapy go to betterhelp.com slash mental make sure you include the slash metal part so they know you came from the the podcast um it's it's really nice not having to leave your house. Uh, they have really uh, qualified therapists who've been vetted. They're licensed in all 50 states, and you can get going in uh, under 48 hours. Just go to uh, betterhelp.com slash metal, fill out a questionnaire. They'll give you a list of uh, therapists that they feel might be a good match for you. You can pick one, and uh, you can change therapists at any time. And uh, I'm a big fan. Yeah, betterhelp.com slash mental. And uh, if you use the uh, um, that URL, you can get 10% off your first month of counseling. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. 
When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, one more survey. This is from Liz. This is Struggle in a Sentence. And uh, about her ADD, she writes, The last time I went out of town for a week, I remembered to pack my favorite whiteout but forgot to bring any underwear. Uh, And a snapshot from her life. She writes, one time while I was manic, I sat down and in 39 hours completed an entire grad course start to finish and had 19 orgasms. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt. Push it all down. You can't go around it. Ireland, like we don't do mental health talk. Through is the only path. No one is ever alone. There's somebody else out there. Don't forget experiencing the same thing as you. That the places you feel most broken now you just gotta look for them. Will one day be your greatest strength. And when you find them, it's a great feeling. And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. You're in the right place. I'm here with Zoe Friedman, who is a longtime uh, comedy industry bigwig. Uh, are you still at Comedy Central? I am not at Comedy Central. Have not been since um, 2011. Well, that shows you how in touch with the industry <laughs> I am. <laughs> yep. I left there and then was most recently at Warner Brothers. You with a couple of other people started an organization called comedy gives back and uh tell us before we get into your story just uh, tell 
the people a little bit about what you guys do, which I just think it's so great. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So uh, a couple friends of mine from the comedy business in 2011 said, uh, I was at the improv, as it would be a lot those days. Mm -hmm. They came up, can we, do you think we can change the world through comedy? And I was like, how much time do you have? Let's sit down. I think a lot about stand up. Um, And originally we were a sort of a, B Corp for profit production company that partnered comedy and charity and added the piece of technology. And we live stream shows, did a 24 hour digital telethon for malaria and for, you know, Haiti water projects, all great causes. And then in 2019, you know, comics kept saying yes. And why are they saying yes? Nope. They say yes to things that they're not very well, much personally impacted, but they want stage time, or maybe we gave them, one of us gave them a job. So Amber J. Lawson, Jody Lieber, and myself pivoted in 2019 and created and became our own 501c3, our own nonprofit. And now we support comedians um, and create a safety net for comics. So much like a Music Cares does for musicians or Actors mm-hmm. Fund does for actors, Amber J., Jody, and I are doing it for comedians. Because nobody was really taking care of them. Yeah. You saw enough uh, <laughs> comics that did their own dental work that you were like, this is this has got to end. Yeah, it was a little bit more like one too many deaths, one too many, you know, suicides, yeah. right, so, that really sort of impacted. And not to ever say that we can claim to change any of that. But if we could be there when you hear the stories of, of the loss to our community, to our mm-hmm. comic community – Somebody's got to do something. And to me, stand-up comedy is one of the greatest art forms, capital A, of an yeah. art, and they are artists. And I've grown up around it all my life. And my parents, who started a comedy club in 1963 called The Improv, I won't be kind of demure about it, mm-hmm. you know, I know they made money off of it and comedy paid my way to college, but they also cared about the artist. They mm-hmm. actually cared a lot about the comedian. And... I saw that and um, get to model it and continue our legacy. But comics are vulnerable. It's a vulnerable community. But the crazy thing is we were going to open up our doors like a music cares and then pandemic happened. Mm -hmm. And then we'd be kind of opened up as a pandemic relief organization. Because a lot of comics couldn't. Well, there was right. Everybody lost access to every job. You know, and people have podcasts. That's great. They have ancillary things. But a lot of comics, working comics, do not. And we did a live-streamed digital telethon again last April 2020. And we raised money. We opened doors. And we started giving pandemic relief grants on April 5th, 2020. We've given over 1,000. We have 1,000 grants. 1,000 grants. I was going to say $1,000. No, 1,000 grants. (laughs) Um, We have about 10 comedians uh, in therapy that we're sponsoring and paying for. And we've just paid for our first comedian to go through chemical dependency treatment. Oh, good for you. And he's doing great, back out doing mm-hmm. work. So, is Are you comfortable talking about um, any of the mental health casualties that inspired you to? Sure. Well, you know, I, I mean, I think the one that really made us... Where we took action. Was it the straw? Was it the person? Was it because it was closest to our our group? I don't know. But Brody Stevens is a comedian yeah. who took his life in 2019. Brody was a guest on this podcast. And probably an amazing guest. I mean, yes. what you get, so, Brody, he was... He, he was, was unique. He was unique and he was true to who he was, whatever setting. Um, and, you know, when I heard 
the particulars, you know, he was very open about his mental health struggles. With bipolar one, which is a motherfucker. Yeah, bipolar one. And very, you know, he would share a lot. And um, but where, again, you know, where where we feel we can maybe help with the intersection because we can mental health is like a beast. And I can't say we could have changed what happened. But when I heard from his manager, you know, with with a comedian's career, so he had a show on HBO and he had insurance through mm-hmm. SAG-AFTRA. The show gets canceled. He's not able to afford the Cobra. He has to leave his health care, get his own, was changing doctors, changing medication. There was kind of a time where mm-hmm. that this was even – that taking his life was even a greater risk. They knew it. And again, maybe if Comedy Is Back existed then, we could have paid for the COBRA for a year. We're not going to be a health exchange, health insurance exchange, but right. perhaps we could have done that. Perhaps we could have gotten to another doctor. Again, I would never presume to say I could change yes. that destiny and, and change. But if there are gaps, if there's some place we can step up, we will figure mm-hmm. it out and do it. And I have to tell you, you know, as a former stand-up comedian, um, during the times of of, of – financial instability and especially back when you could be turned down for health insurance um it is a cloud hanging over your head being your own boss um it 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 certainly has its advantages but you feel so vulnerable and it's really unconscionable that we live in a country where somebody can go bankrupt by getting cancer horrible and that is probably i heard a statistic like a high for 37%, whatever, of bankruptcy is due to medical, if not higher. I think it was even higher when I heard yeah. that, you know? Right. It's a, It weighs on you mentally. Yeah. Yep. The fear, living the fear yeah. and not feeling supported. I mean, honestly... I, the, thank you for mentioning that because I think when you take away that sense of community and that people have your back and that you are not alone, but you are part of a thing greater than yourself... When that's taken away, fuck, the mean part of your brain, the catastrophizing part of your brain takes the ball and runs. Well, that's right. It just grows and grows and fills in the blanks and, you know, all of the rest. Yes. Yes. So to answer that, Brody was the one that really, I think, made us say enough, enough. Let's do what we can Nobody's taking care of the comedians, right? A lot of people do fundraising for, mm-hmm. you know, malaria, eradication of malaria and water, Haiti water, all stuff that we felt proud to partner with. But nobody was taking care of the comedians. And it's such a vulnerable life. Like you said, you know, will I have enough to pay my rent? Will I have enough for health insurance? And that wane of not feeling supported, I will say that the grants initially were $500. They weren't like life-changing. Right. But because um, because they felt comedians, working comedians felt seen and heard, yes. that 500 was amplified. The fact that like when we did um, Comedy Gives Back Laugh-Aid last April 4th and Jimmy Fallon and Adam Sandler and Whitney Cummings and Burke Kreischer and Ron Funches and Roy, Patton Oswalt all showed up mm-hmm. to do a fundraiser. Those aren't the comedians that needed. They did a fundraiser on comedians everywhere and the comedians felt it and they felt 
again, I feel like that 500 was amplified. And, you know, to your point also about like those crushing fears that everybody has, but comedians, like, how do you, how do you get insurance? How do you even file your taxes? How do I do an extension? We actually do weekly, um, in pandemic zoom gatherings and help comedians with that we bring in experts even ask a booking agent ask a club owner what you know we try to give tips that will help comedians be able to support themselves and thrive to, you know, to say that a lot of comedians are emotionally stunted <laughs> and uh children in adults bodies is is an understatement i mean i i have well said. seen i have seen <laughs> Some people that I've shared condos with on the road or no, you know, personally as friends where it's just like, oh, holy shit. Um, it, I had Al Lubell on the podcast and Al, it, he openly says, I am a man child. I'm a man child. You know, he can't balance a checkbook. He doesn't know how to drive. It, you know, he, he doesn't know when to change his clothes brilliantly funny guy yeah great mind yeah wow yeah that i all varying degrees right in comedians yeah. but there's a certain amount of that brain of maybe being creative you know where you know and often they come from a place where maybe broken family where you oh, know yeah. how to balance a budget or a checkbook i mean those skills are not passed on a lot regardless yeah. but you know comedians are doing comedy because you know, there was there was something that they, I think, you know, wanted to process. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you think? <laughs> I think yeah, most comics we did comedy not because we chose to, but because we had to. It I chose mean, you. <laughs> yes, I mean, you've seen comics struggle and have shitty shows and oh. have career disappointments, and the fact that we dust ourselves off and come back for more. Uh, it's just uh, a testament to how <laughs> much there is a part of us inside, or at least used to be, that f needs filling. Oh, yes. It's something, something special, something filling. <laughs> yeah. Um, for sure, that need to, you know, have complete strangers immediately judge <laughs> clap <laughs> clap laugh support yes. or tell you no fucking way oh sorry can we curse yeah, you know you can curse you know yeah. um you know no way i'm not laughing at that you know arms crossed oh, you know yeah. Oh, yeah. and then they go back for more go yeah. back for more oh i know so let's talk about uh any struggles you've had mentally or emotionally what what was it like growing up um your parents split yeah, my parents split when I was about 10, 11. Mm -hmm. Great age. <laughs> Great age. Great age. Perfect. Right. You Very know, confident. You, right. That's right. Puberty you know your coming. place in the world. <laughs> yeah, puberty is not the most Comfortable terrifying Comfortable in your body as a woman <laughs> in our right. society. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, my parents split. Um, we moved to California uh, as a family to expand the business, the improv. And um, it was not happy times for my family out here. Um and I don't know if it was really happy times much for my parents. You know, I did a documentary about the improv mm -hmm. when it was fifth, turning 50 in 2013. I interviewed my parents. And part of my sort of side hustle with asking them questions like and asking other people that knew them, like, were you guys ever happy? Like, I, I learned more about them. And what I learned about is actually – 
you know, the way the divorce went down is my mother, um, you know, was very angry. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And she did about anything in particular. Well, she was she's pretty much a rageaholic or was growing okay. up, like okay. yelling just a lot. Sure. Like, um, but you know, my dad was a shitty husband. I mean, he cheated yeah. on her um, a lot, and that's what I'm saying. Like, it was a different time, but God knows, I was like, what? Like early in your marriage? Like I knew it was mm-hmm. later, but like early on and. You know, again, different times, but still, I also think of my mother as somebody who wouldn't put up with that. But, you know, she was a 30-year-old, 28-year-old girl from Chicago, you know, and my mom was a singer on Broadway, and um, they met and had, as uh, Uncle Dirty, a comic who's passed away, said, they were very lusty people. I was like, too much information. But, um, no, my parents split up when we were out in California, um, and then once the divorce was final, my mom moved 3,000 miles away because she did not like it in L.A. Mm-hmm. and took my sister and I with her. And, like, you know, I guess— Had, had the Hollywood Improv opened yet? Yeah, that's what we came to open in 75, 76. Yes. And, I mean, yeah. You had a front row seat for the history of comedy. Oh, yeah. And I loved it. I mean, my sister is a health chef in Santa Cruz, so it could go the total opposite way right. as well, you know? I mean, I just happened to fall in love with it. I loved— I. I love the community so much, and I feel like it's a privilege that I get to kind of be in the community considering I'm not a comic, yes. you know? And on the contrary, not only am I not a comic, I'm industry perhaps and maybe, you to, know, opposed, but although I've yes. never felt like that was the type of no, you know, executive I, I, have, I was. I have to say, Zoe, while there are people uh, who are in the industry, people in power who are disliked by comedians you are at the list of favorites uh that comedians really um feel like you you got our back and this is before you even started doing your nonprofit. i took a meeting or two with you when i was back pitching shows and you were so kind oh well you were so kind I uh, I appreciate that and um you know that gets reflected back to me which feels really lovely like it's so good to hear it like I recently saw Jimmy Pardo and he said, like, you were always you gave me my break on Kilborn and, you know, and like even Dave Chappelle, I worked on his set with him for Letterman when I worked at Letterman and he comes up to me. I went to see him in Vegas as before the Delta variant, like, Mm -hmm. let's go have a little fun. And um, he stopped in the middle of the room and says, how kind and helpful you were and you held my hand i will never forget it i will do anything for you you know what that feel like well it feels as good as when you say it because truthfully if i'm good to anybody it doesn't matter he's dave Chappelle. i mean it certainly Mm -hmm. feels great feels great that in the middle of everything he stops and hugs me but i think i've seen such the underbelly of comedians my whole entire life which is a why i've never done it and I always joke when I have an impulse to do it, I just go to therapy. But the biggest difference between me and Polly Shore is I've had a ton more therapy than him. I kid you not. That probably is the biggest difference. Um, but, you know, it, I, again, I, I take it as a sense of privilege and I get to be in this community and I love it so much. But um, so. Um, so your parents got oh, divorced. So parents your got mom divorced. moves 3,000 miles so you, away. Yep, exactly. We moved 3,000 miles away. Um, and. I don't know, like a couple years later, I developed anorexia and I sort of stopped eating. And um, 
I'd lost a lot of weight. I always sort of struggled with my weight. I was always like a chubby kid, like consistently chubby. I was born eight pounds, 14 ounces and have stayed consistently chubby. And, you know, growing through adolescence and, you know, your body image, like you're not feeling comfortable at all. I don't think wanting to grow up and go through puberty and, you know, really. So I think eating was a control thing and eating was kind of keep my body a little bit flatter, maybe less period, you know, all of that puberty stuff. Um, I was lucky enough. Well, my mother was besides kind of um, sort of emotionally incested, my sister and I, in terms of the divorce and letting you know all the details, talking shit about your dad. A hundred percent. And she's an enlightened person. And yet. Like she couldn't get out of her own way because both my parents are full-blown narcissists. I mean, it looks very different between the two. Like my mother's comes from it from a sense of I'm a piece of shit, but everybody knows it like that Judy right. Toll thing. Yes, and I'm then, a piece of shit the world, world revolves around. Right, the world, right? right. And my dad's just kind of inflated narcissist because – and he's – you know, he loves the accolades. It looks right. different, but it's it's often all about them. Yeah. You know, and when comics, and you know this, but uh, for the listener, when comics move here to Los Angeles from whatever town we're coming from, this is the last stop. And uh, for the longest time, and probably even today, your dad's club, the Improv in Hollywood, is the place where you went to have the industry look at you, potentially get your own show, and your stage time is very much influenced by whether or not your dad bud likes you and so it's it's his thumb up or thumb down you feel like could ruin or make your life and that's got to be a big power trip for him i'm sure it was and he liked that i mean he liked that where yeah my mother liked it too they got to you know pick and crown who were you know my mother ran the new york club and my father you know kept the la club and expanded but you know they he was a big personality and loved that and i i think that's ultimately why my parents probably couldn't be together is they were too they were too similar in some ways like my dad's wife my stepmom is amazing and incredibly selfless in a lot of ways although does a lot of self-care is very put together but makes it about my dad you know and that's my mother couldn't do that because it's about her drama and her her woe yeah. You know, yeah. So the the kind of emotional incest, how do you think that's affected you? Well, I would say that it, my sister got it worse because she's older and she kind of left to go to college at 18 um, in the Midwest and then traveled and never came kind of back to live. And not like she wasn't in touch with us, but she kind of, kind of went off because I think she felt she needed her – space to breathe. I stayed right in it. I stayed not only kind of, I went to school upstate, came back to New York, worked in comedy, worked at the improv. So I was kind of in it. Um, And so the, um, so I got the emotional incest a little bit less, but how I would say the whole divorce and sort of, well, the divorce, I think the control thing was my eating disorder. Mm -hmm. That thank God my mother is an enlightened person on a lot of levels and was very pro therapy. And I was crying over eating a cookie, and my best friend wrote me a letter saying, Don't let food control your life. I had never thought about it that way. It was like at that moment, I showed it to my mom, and my mom went to ta- business. Like she got right. me a therapist. Oh, and, good for her. you know, I've been, uh, you know, to me, therapy is kind of an ongoing relationship. Long term, short term, need a need new tools, you know, cognitive, mm-hmm. behavioral, you know, all of it. I've had 
all different kinds. And I'm so grateful that it's a tool that I can go back to. You know, if I don't have what I need, I'm like, all right, I need to go figure out how to do this, you know, whatever that means, going back into therapy. But, um, you know, I would say that I was very, um, I'm very concerned about my mother's emotions. I'm very concerned about her drama. I'm very it's I think about my parents first before my own well-being in a weird way. I so here's a funny anecdote. I've been married almost 18 years and it was not until covid till pandemic that I did my photo album. We didn't spend the money at the time. We had a photographer, but it was like 500 more dollars to have her do the photo album. And for whatever reason, we were like, we can't spend that any more money. So we said no. And then, you know, I we get married, I get pregnant very fast. You know, and then life's all, you know, you're, it's on and I, I love my photos. And I, so I went back and I did my album and I was so happy. It was great to like go through the box and relive it. And it made me really happy. And I was really excited to share it with my parents. And these are the photos of the wedding? These are the photos of my wedding that both my parents were at. And um, I was like, oh. And I said to my husband, I don't know if I can show it to them. I'm not sure there's enough photos of each of them. And and my husband, who knows my parents well and knows all this, was like, it's our wedding, Zoe. It it is not about them. My concern about them looking at my photos and being like, we're just not in that. And I did show it to both of them. And I was nervous. Mm. I noticed I was so nervous showing it to them. And I and my it was almost my stepmother when we got to a picture, another picture of my father, when she goes, There you are. Like so she fluffs him up and no wonder I'm Yeah. You know? I mean, that was crazy. Seventeen years later, eighteen years later, I'm fifty-four and I'm still concerned that I will upset my parents that they're not it's not enough about yeah. them. So I imagine you're good at walking into a room and reading the emotional temperature. I am. I mean, you're not being sarcastic, right? I'm so good at that. Yeah, no. Yeah, right. That, okay, that, yeah. That's what I mean is yeah. probably why you've also been able to be among comedians, i.e. narcissists, uh, for decades and be loved. I know how to fit right in <laughs> to narcissists. It is a, I mean, honestly, you know, it's like that shadow artist. I'm, that's a very sort of comfortable, you know, place. You know, work yeah. with comics behind the, you know, and work. Yeah. But um, yeah, I'm. I'm. I thought that was really telling of something recent. But I feel like I'm not over it yet. And by the way, my mother is in my guest house, so nobody's over it. She is a hundred feet from my husband and I and my son, and she was moved in to help with my son for a year. My son is turning 17 in October, and she's still there. And how do you feel about that? It's very complicated and kind of toxic, to tell you the truth. And my husband's a wasp and won't, doesn't really go to therapy willingly. So he wrote a book. It's option. I mean, whatever. Thank God my mom doesn't know how to find podcasts. So because it's, <laughs> it's called F my mother-in-law. But it's yes. great. And it's his release. That's how he got through it. I just, you know, go to therapy. He wrote a blog and got optioned, and I just would go to therapy. Right. You know, I uh, – I'm, I hold it in, I hold it in, I hold it in, and then I fucking explode. And then I get like, I felt like I was a sumo wrestler a couple weeks ago. I was like, like, like my, up. I felt that body rage from like, and yeah. I'm standing in our house and, oh, I just feel shitty after. But I have a lot of anger about it, I think, yeah. of late, you know, of like, 
so many years. And it's hard on my husband and I. It's put a strain on us, right? Even though, like, I know she's tough and I could validate him, but I'm certainly good at, like, juggling both, you know, and then, not, again, not making it anything about me, you know. Right. So if you could go back and talk to yourself at any age mm-hmm. and say anything, do anything for 10-year-old Zoe mm-hmm. or whatever age you were struggling at the most, what would you... Mm-hmm. Um... Hmm, that's so good. Um, oh my God, so much. Um, I would say that, like, if I could, if I could, like, the theme through all of the the messages, and it's not just ten, it's twelve, it's at fifty, is trust your gut and speak from your gut. Yeah. You know, um, and um, yeah, I'm probably. Tell my mom, no, don't come for a year. It's okay. We got this. No I'm kidding. <laughs> no, probably trusting trusting my gut and speaking to that because I have like professional things like that. Like um, share some with uh, you know. Obviously, you want to protect anybody. Oh, that... but there's like really like there's one or two that sort of stand out that um, and and there and I know you want more. Like I, I could just remember when I worked at David Letterman's show and I would work with comics. And I would kind of go back and forth about a joke. And I'd be like, look, I don't think you should put that in your set or I don't think you should close. But it kills, you know. Right. And I go, I get it. Um, you know your set, but this is Dave. And if you want to come back for Dave, then you might want to get rid of it. And then I would acquiesce and I would let them do it. And then I would get like a fucking, you know, skunk eye from Dave. And I'd be like, why oh, no, I trust my gut? I'll tell you one crazy specific story was with Amazing Jonathan. Mm-hmm. He came on, his closing magic trick was to stab his assistant in the eye with a scissor. Mm-hmm. And it was so, dis- like it felt really misogynistic based on like their rapport, their comedic rapport. And I said such, and he bullied me, going, that's ridiculous. And I didn't, that we were double taping that day, and I wasn't able to, like, run it by, like, and mm-hmm. Rob Burnett, you know, so I kind of, like, okayed it. And not only did Dave agree with me, like, we had to retape Amazing Jonathan, and that show never retaped anything. We retaped once when Salt and Peppa had a wa- like a wardrobe malfunction, right. and her nipple showed, and like when Amazing Jonathan bullied me into letting him. And I'm like, why didn't I trust my gut? Yeah. I should have said no, and I should have been like, you are absolutely not going to do that. Like that clarity, that sort of, you know, is how, and not yelling, just be. Oh. The the thoughts that we have in the elevator on the way down, <laughs> every line reading, every response I've ever wanted to give has come to me in the elevator on the way down or in the parking lot. Totally, yeah. yeah. Or telling a friend, and they're like, "Did you say that?" I was like, "No, it just came out of my mouth now, not then." <laughs> Were you there when Bill Hicks had his infamous set? So this is really interesting. I was there, yes, in the time frame. And the other thing about working at the show, and I was a receptionist at the time in the talent department, so I hadn't yet started working directly with comics. But because of my upbringing, I was very – I knew all of them and I was Mm -hmm. kind of involved. The other thing about Letterman is you never took a day off, ever. Except if you were deathly ill. But usually everybody got sick on hiatus. You know, it was that amazing thing. 
the, I took off a half a day to go to bankruptcy court with my mother, speaking of her needs. And I kind of, because she was filing bankruptcy on the New York Improv and she was pretty upset. And I went with her, you know, and, and the New York Club was everything to both of us. I loved it so much. I took the afternoon off and that's when it all went down. I never saw the original set. Really? Yeah, because it was like it was. They put it away, and I was just a receptionist at the time. I was like, right. I want to see all the, you know. I so I was I was there, and yet it was a weird thing that I, I wasn't directly involved yeah. with. I was still at a pretty low level, you know. Yeah. And I had taken an, an afternoon off, which was crazy. Like I we never took off time, but it was to help my mother. Uh, for, for the listeners who don't know, Bill Hicks was a legendary oh. comedian who sadly died of cancer in like 93, yeah. uh, I believe. But he was the Lenny Bruce of, of my generation. And yeah. he did a set on Letterman that after Bill died, Letterman said, I regret that we did not air the original one because Bill pushed the limits. I don't think it would be a big deal today no. at all. But back then, Bill was pushing the limits of what was... Uh, well, and I would almost say because his reputation was that, it, it almost was because that was his reputation, the set itself, when they showed it, I mean, again, hindsight, right? We're in a different time. It didn't seem half half as inflammatory as a lot of right. his other stuff. Did it have to do with religion? I think most of his stuff that people no, got upset about. No, I think about. it had to do with like an airline thing. Yeah. Wow. I, I think uh, I, I would have to check my facts yes. again, but I love that he brought on Bill's mother mm -hmm. and I love that he was apologetic. I yeah. love people when they show up and they kind of can speak their vulnerability, mm -hmm. like after Dave's affair, even mm -hmm. like when he knowing that I couldn't put on any comics telling jokes about sex at all. He was very Midwestern for him to say I had sex with that, like was. I said, that's so hard for him. Not like poor him. He should step right. up. But like, anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, was it difficult working there emotionally? No, not for I, Oh, let me say this. I, you know, there were, there are, <laughs> I was, I was not in Dave's direct purview. He did not care as much about the talent department. He cared about comics. That was a big and deal. And the writers. And the, but the writers, a hundred percent, like you know sort of the how hard he was on them it wasn't necessarily so hard on us robert morton was my boss at the time morty who was with mm -hmm. the letterman show forever and forever. ever and he was like he was a hard boss he was fairly like he liked to kind of uh inspire or um with like criticism rather mm -hmm. than lift you up i had right. the same job under two people, after he left the show, a woman named Joanna Jordan came in. And she was the head of the department, head of the talent department versus like EP. But his he came up through talent. Anyway, I had the same job with two bosses. It, it was the best learning experience because my job was so different with this other boss who lifted me up and inspired mm. by like you're doing great. Just call back one more time and and you know in wow, terms that of must getting, have felt amazing. It was. It was totally amazing. I mean, Robert Morton and I are now good friends, and I feel like he used to say, "I go, you were so hard on me. You made me cry." When I was a receptionist for two years at the show, and I went up to. Uh, put my hat in the ring finally for a promotion. And two years is a long time mm -hmm. <laughs> to be on the phones. And um, 
so somebody finally left. Nobody ever left the show. And so when she left, she was a talent assistant. I said, I'd like to go, you know, put my hand in the ring. And he's like, I can't give you the job. And he had said, like, when somebody leaves and I just, like, did, I couldn't do it. There was nothing else I could do but cry. It was like a comedy sketch when I came down. Like, how'd it go? And they all saw my eyes. And they were like, oh, you didn't cry in front of him, did you? Like, you didn't show weakness. Oh, no. <laughs> because you know what? He could have said, we're hiring a new talent executive and – you know, I want to give her a little agency here to hide. You know, he didn't say anything. It was just like shitty. And I call him on. He goes, you were a brat. I go, I am not a brat. I've never been a brat. You can't say that. I worked so hard, you know. Yeah. So. And, and uh, you know, from what I understand, uh, Letterman is as hard on himself as he is other people. 100%. Like yes. there's – it wasn't that he wasn't doing the work and never expected everybody. Right. No, not at all. He was a very – that's why, you know, it was like, wow, when, when Jay Leno got The Tonight Show, and I was like, oh, what is the luck that our competition would be a harder worker than even Dave? Like, Jay took no vacation. They both were so – Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh. So uh, where where else can we pick up in your story? You know, you've talked about uh, holding in the rage yeah. until it explodes. Um, Currently, yeah. Years hold held in, I think. Say that Year, again. it's been held in for held years. In for yeah, years. Yeah. yeah. Um, Any instances where you can think of? Uh, you shared one where you didn't speak your mind, and you regretted it. I did, um, and that was. I mean, let me just think. Like, there's many threads I can go. Now I'm just talking out loud. I guess we could end. That's this all right. <laughs> I mean, thinking out loud, I should say. Um, Are any snapshots from your life that you want to share that you feel like uh, kind of represent uh, your path to being who you are today or how you view the world or how you view yourself? Yeah. Whether um, they're good or bad. Well, I will say that um, that um, the last four years, three years of my life where I have been doing Comedy Gives Back and independently producing have been pretty growthful and expanding years. So I worked for companies and corporations for a good amount of time. Before that. Before that. And the dynamic when you work for a long time in a company, especially if you're a good soldier, and I was definitely a good soldier is um, – now I'm going to – it's like, oh, this is sort of a theme as I say it. Like you become a cog in the wheel and it's about them and it's kind of not about – you know, you lose right. – you, you have this the, – the possibility to lose your identity and your – I would say your self-worth. Um, I would say that um, – like even my time at Comedy Central, I was there 11 years I was there, three boss, different bosses, two company over, you know, uh, integrations or takeovers. And by the end, I probably wasn't doing my best. I had somebody who I felt very competitive with, whose role was undefined. And for the first time in my life, I, I had, um, like, work issues. I Somebody stopped talking to me that I worked mm-hmm. with there. And I was very old at the time to have to deal with those type of issues because right. – that wasn't my experience. My real experience is I'm collaborative to a fault. I get along with a lot of people. Yeah. And my time was up there. Like it really f- was clear to me that when it wasn't right, I think I wish I realized it earlier on and rather feeling like it was something I did or something that I lacked. 
um, under like I, I it took me when I left there because my contract wasn't picked up, um, and I I remember I think they thought they were doing me a favor. I had a year left in my contract, and um, that's I guess showbiz cool that you get paid for a job for a year that you don't have to do. To me, it was devastating. Mm. I worked. That's how I define myself. Um, you know, uh, I even lost a friend over it who was a comic because I was sad and I was complaining that I was like, what, I'm such a terrible employee that they, a year they couldn't work with me that like, I felt, right. you know, and he was like, don't complain. I know. And I, I mean, I lost a friend over it. He had no compassion for where I was coming. And I just sort right. of was like, I, I can't even understand, like we are, you know, yes. missing. So, and then I left and I had to do some soul searching. I was devastated. I mean, it was a real sort of, I even talk about it now and I still could get like, but what I should have known is like, I let myself be sort of shrink down and I didn't trust my gut. And when they let me go, they said my, like the boss didn't know if my voice was clear about what I liked and what I didn't because I was worried about the numbers and I was worried about this person that I was compet like mm-hmm. I felt competition and it's the first time that I wasn't looking forward being aligned and working as a group and I it wasn't safe anymore for me and so it was a great learning and it took a cu- number of years because I had I'd left Comedy Central in 2011 and I, you know, they allowed me to voice it any which way and I got to say that I left to do the documentary about the improv and kind of lie to the community, whatever people wanted to, you know, my husband's like, you know, when people leave and they have time on their contract, let's be really clear, nobody really buys it. But I was like, don't say that. I was so upset, like my truth-telling husband, you know. Um, And I had to kind of work my way up and make myself understand, like, it took me a while to go like, oh, right. I have – I'm Zoe Friedman. I'm a comedy executive and I'm not just a Comedy Central executive. I'm a comedy person, producer, whatever, however I define myself. Um, but it took a while. It took like – and it took I, – I brought some – I hired somebody to help me with like my bio resume. I hadn't ever had – you know, I was there 11 years. I sort of grew up 11 years at Letterman, got another job at Comedy Central and just kind of stayed, you know, a while. And just by – almost looking at my resume and trying to do a updated bio with this woman, Carol Kirshner, who has a, great skills. I was like, oh, my God, I do have so much experience. Oh, my God, I'm not terrible person that they had to let go. I mean, really, nice. it was like the 11 years of good content and yeah. th- big tries, big swings, some mm-hmm. good some- – they didn't even have – they had no value. I lost it. I was like, I'm a piece of shit, you know. And I was like, no, I have experience and I have value. And, I mean, all of it as a human, as a – like I'm beyond my job. It was – because my parents also were very identified with their jobs and such, you know. So anyway, I would say that, like, I wish I didn't lose myself that much. But it, it's one of those learnings that, that you know, you can't – Go of you know zoom out and when everybody leaves the company now I send an email if I read about it and I just say like I don't know what you're you know I don't I, I I say I hope I wish you great expansion because it was really like everything is for perhaps a reason now I feel like so much more fortified in and I'm the person that's taken 54 years to go like maybe I can be my own boss yeah like I never I loved my bosses. Like most of the time, because they were really fruitful relationships. And now in the last situation, Warner Brothers was good. But at the end, it was time to go. It was five years. And I kind of felt myself outgrowing that 
dynamic a little bit and that was weird too right mm-hmm. like because that wasn't my thing and what is the name of the uh, improv documentary oh it's called 50 years behind the brick wall the improv yeah. 50 years behind the brick wall it was made for epics but it has made the rounds it was on i think it's on netflix or hulu now okay. and it's a great celebration of the improv and it's 50 years i mean it it I got to interview. Everything happened there. Everything happened. And I will tell you, one of the highlights of my career and part of what makes me like build my pieces was I got to sit down and interview Jerry Seinfeld and Jay Leno and Larry David and Richard Lewis and Keenan and Damon and Marlon and Sean Waynes. Oprah couldn't get the four Waynes together, I know. Um, and you know, it made it put me in a lovely place to be with these people and have great reflection of history with them, but also hear about the club and how meaningful it was. Yeah. And uh, it was it was such a highlight to be the off air interviewer for that. I got to I got to check it out. It's really good. It's fifty minutes, like fifty five minutes. It's fast and and uh, you know, originally I wanted to make a do- more of a documentary. Mm-hmm. Because I and I wanted it to be a little bit from the point of view of a child of divorce, because in a weird way, like even years later, it is so defining to me now. And with my friends who are getting who are getting divorced, um, I find myself uh, struggling with being friends with both people in the divorce. I pick one. And even if they say be friends with each other, I can't like I go, yeah, I'll call him. I find myself not calling him back, you know, like or if I. It's it's a weird defining thing that you think you're you go through therapy you think you're you know and then you're like no it's still really defining and it comes out in different ways people at my son's school that go on camp divorce people that go on camping trips together to be there for their kid yeah. and put the kid's needs before them I was like what <laughs> like it's yeah. mind blowing I was like what's happening it's so uncomfortable it's so great it's, it's so, so great, great. and your- that like co- that. That sharing of the houses, yeah, you know where the kids can stay. Yeah, and I imagine when kids find out that, yeah, things have changed, but their world isn't being destroyed. Oh. Uh, you know, that that also must be a life lesson for them. That that yeah, that you can go on. That you that it's not like, yeah, that it's not the the end of the world or whatever. You know, right. I, I recently Greg Fitzsimmons' wife and I have similarities. Like our parents split up at the same age. We're both from New York, and she recently said like her mother never dated. My mother really never dated. She threw herself and and she said I wished she would because I think I I thought it was all or nothing or something. You know, there was mm-hmm. really well said. I was like, yeah, because it was just like I mean, life as I knew it. I went moved three thousand miles and. Started stuffing it down. Stopped eating. At a girl. You know? Yeah. At a girl. <laughs> you read the Constitution. I think I it's in there towards the bottom. Definitely. <laughs> uh, anything else you, you'd like to share before uh, before we wrap up? Oh, thank God I had I didn't have therapy this week. Thank you, Paul. Um, <laughs> I will say that. Um, could I just talk about comedy is back for of one? Of course. So as we are here talking about mental health, and we kind of talked about Brody and losing a lot of comedians in in the in the industry and comedians struggling with basic needs sometimes therapy um we I will just put a plea we need uh 
donations. We need to refill our coffers. We um, want to be there. We anticipate the need growing as we come out of pandemic for mm-hmm. comedians. I think the pandemic is going to have a lasting effect, both financial crisis relief and also mental health. And um, so please, uh, if you are able, uh, go to comedygizback.com and donate, or you can text LAUGH, L-A-U-G-H, to 707070. Reach out to us at uh, Zoe at ComedyGizBack.com. That's what I would say. <laughs> I, Zoe, I just, thank you. Uh, were you no, say I just oh. I feel I feel always like awkward asking and plugging, but you got all yeah, you know. I hate it. I, know, I hate right? doing it. Yeah, because I, I feel like people are going to be like, "Oh, he's so off-putting." Done. Yeah, done with him. Don't don't have this reflect on Paul. This is all me. Don't <laughs> tune out of his podcast. No, no. no, but it's really important, and and. Um, I'm glad we can uh you you were able to have us on. Thank you or me. Yeah. And thank you for being you. Thank you for being uh somebody that always made me feel comfortable and seen uh when I was at my most insecure. I appreciate it. I'm glad I could do it, Paul. Thanks for having me. What a sweet human being. Many, many thanks to Zoe. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Let's dive into some surveys. This is uh, an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself G'day Mate. She writes, Hi, Paul from Australia. I'm a big fan of your podcast and listen to it almost daily on my sometimes long drive to work. I'm a long-time listener, but I've never filled out a survey before. I feel compelled to write to you after what happened today. Me and my hubby have lived in our current place for about five years. We have a three-year-old and making time for sex has been hard lately. We both have our own problems, but that can wait for another survey. So the only downside of this beautiful place is that we don't have any privacy in our backyard and me and hubby always fantasize and talk about having sex outside. This has been especially more since this last Christmas we bought a trampoline for our kids, so obviously that is now high on the to-do-on list. Ha ha. So uh, we've been building up our garden over the last few years in hopes of blocking out our neighbor whose house has a direct view of this trampoline area. We're still a long way off, and lately this has been getting us down. As you can imagine, not much sex, uh, stress, and a screaming toddler doesn't make for a happy husband, not to mention COVID has just started impact our state for the first time since all this began two years ago, so we've been spending a lot more time inside. Anyway, to the fucked up part now. 
We had a knock at the door today. It turns out that our neighbor killed himself a few nights ago. As soon as I heard the words, I felt the tightest feeling in my chest as I held back tears. I couldn't believe it. Both hubby and I were in shock as we had only seen him a week earlier and he was doing okay. He was really such a beautiful man and will definitely be missed. Dot, dot, dot. But at least now we can have sex on the trampoline. Oh, Paul, I feel terrible, but I knew only you and the fellow listeners would see the humor in this. Much love from Australia, and please remember to check on your neighbors and your friends. Everyone is doing it, though at the moment, everyone is doing it tough at the moment. We all need a bit of love in our life. I think there might be a typo in there. And that's all I want to take out of that survey is that you made a mistake at the end. Oh, thank you for that. Oh, that is the definition of awfulsome. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Blue Moon. She identifies as gay. She's 19. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, uh, never been sexually abused, uh, never been emotionally abused. Um, darkest thoughts. I'm a lesbian, but I fantasize about most male author. author- authority figures getting me into a room and raping me. The one time a man kissed me, and every time a man touches me, I freeze up and dissociate, so I know I'm not attracted to them, and I'm not sure why I fantasize about that. Darkest Secrets. I had an online relationship with a 19-year-old man when I was 10 years old. He would say sexual things to me and talk about coming to see me. He would ask me to send him non-sexual pictures, and I did. It went on for two years, and I thought I loved him. I know now how fucked up that is, but I kept it going for so long that I think a lot of it was my fault. No, that is not your fault. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fantasize about being raped by men all the time, and I'm not sure why. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would want to tell the man I had a, quote, relationship with that he's an abuser and what he did to me was not okay. Have you shared these things with others? When I was still in the online relationship, I remember talking about it with a friend of mine who was definitely concerned, but we were both 11 and like me, I don't think she knew how messed up that really was and I've never told anyone else. How do you feel after writing these things down? It feels awful to remember these things that I've been burying for years, but I'm glad to be able to tell someone about it. Thank you for opening up about, about that. It's so it's so important for us, you know, whether it's a close friend or a therapist or a support group to to start to process that shit and it sucks. It fucking is so uncomfortable. And that is not uncommon, by the way, the sexual fantasies that, that you have. I've mentioned many times the the book uh, by Jack Morin called The Erotic Mind, and it talks about the hurdles that our brain places upon our sexual fantasies that uh, uh, feel so contradictory, but uh, in some way it kind of turbocharges them, you know, when you throw shame and, you know, something being against our morals or related to trauma that we've experienced. It's, uh, it can be really quite disconcerting. This is from the love survey filled out by Fangirl. And uh, she writes, I, 
I love going to Comic-Con type conventions and meeting the people who play the characters that bring me so much comfort. That's like getting a hug from a mother figure. That is awesome. Never been to Comic-Con. I'm not a big comic book, book person. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself, I have no idea what this means, bag of toys and small sandwiches. Uh, about his alcoholism, he writes, I remember the painful reality of putting on another hospital gown, the way my heart felt after seeing that I have 37 missed calls from my wife. Wow. About being a sex crime victim, I was sexually abused at the age of 12 by my parents' friend. He would sneak into my room at night and give me oral sex. I still remember his beard around my mouth when I would wake up. How I became excited and disgusted was fused into my sexuality. It's taken me what feels a lifetime to understand it wasn't my fault. Um... And about his sex addiction, he writes, Pornography was how I coped with my feelings through high school. Pornography fed my trauma. The secrets fueled my shame. My sexual addiction destroyed relationships and broke hearts. It was also the devastation that brought me into recovery and the real connection with myself and others. And he put a little heart there. Amen to that, man. Amen to that. There's nothing like finding that silver lining to... trauma or, you know, difficulty. We get into recovery and it's like, wow, this has just turned a pile of bullshit into gold. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you for that. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by um, a person who identifies uh well, as, as far what gender are you? I don't even know, man. The universal consciousness is genderless. Uh, they identify as bisexual. They're in their 20s. They were raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. And they don't uh, say specifically what it was. Uh, they've never been physically Abused, but they've been emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. Violent suicide fantasies with overtones of martyrdom. Intrusive thoughts about the nature of morality. Specifically, what if I am actually an immoral person? What if I am incapable of loving or empathizing with other people? Sometimes pervasive fear of impending nuclear warfare. Darkest secrets. Last month, I hit slashed pushed my partner during an argument. It isn't really a secret because I had to tell his mom, my parents, one of our friends, and the crisis therapist I saw after the incident. But it isn't something that I want other people to know, and it brings me to a place of deep shame and regret whenever I remember it. More shameful than the act itself is how much fear and sadness it caused him. I sometimes feel that I can't live with myself when I think about how much emotional tumult I consistently bring into the life of the person I love most in the world. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I'm attracted to overweight people to the degree that I cannot become aroused by thin or fit people, even when I find them aesthetically attractive. I am compelled by the opulence of a fat body. 
I'm attracted to fat as a signifier of power as much as a signifier of vulnerability. I want to serve a powerful fat man, to see him use his stature to command others, and then watch him come completely undone by the raw pleasure of food. I am most attracted to those who are aware of that potent duality. I have tried throughout my life to obliterate this desire and am currently at a point where I have suppressed it, but it has come at the cost of a total negation of sexual feeling. Sometimes I am comfortable with my inclinations, but as my partner is overweight and addicted to, not liberated by food, I have opted to forego my desires for his sake. I want him to be healthy more than I want to have an orgasm. Have you shared these things with others? I have shared all of these with my partner. He's supportive of my attempts at self-betterment, though I can feel his patience waning as I continue to struggle with old patterns of behavior. How do you feel after writing these things down? Energized but concerned that I have gone, quote, too far and that others will find what I've written too controversial. I don't think at all that what you wrote. It sounds really human to me. And you sound like a, you know, a really good person who is, you know, doing what they can to, um, not that there's anything morally wrong with your fantasies, but the fact that you are trying to balance that with intimacy and to not objectify your, your partner is, is to me is, is really admirable and, uh, sending you some love. Speaking of loves, this is from the love survey filled out by Horatio Q. Wifflebottom. Oh, I am a big fan of your old style English bike with a giant front wheel. Penny farthing, those are called. I rode a penny farthing once for a, a bit we did on a dinner in a movie. That was the fucking scariest ride. Those things are really tall, and the handlebars are about four inches wide. It is the most, it is the worst engineered thing I think I've ever experienced. Uh, Share things you love. Uh, They write, laying in bed with the window open on a slightly cool autumn night, curled up under a blanket, listening to the sounds outside. Yeah, I love that feeling of being in in a cocoon. You know, if it's really cold out or it's raining, just feeling safe. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Claire. And this one is fucking dark and a little bit graphic. Uh, About her sex addiction, she writes, I masturbated aggressively for so long that my clitoris developed a fucking callus. That's not the, the part that I'm talking about. Snapshot from her life. I've been trying to learn basic woodworking. As I was trying to learn to use a circular saw by myself, I felt upset that grandfather was no longer around to help me learn. He was a master carpenter. Having him there could have been wonderful. A moment later, I remembered the way he crammed his penis inside of me at three and seemed unbothered by the fact that I was in physical agony. I remember wanting to scream for my mom because it hurt but feeling afraid she would yell at me for being bad. I remember feeling unsure whether or not I was alive as he scraped his semen out of me with his fingers and a rough paper towel. My heart was crushed by loss and betrayal as if this had just happened. I felt incredibly stupid for momentarily forgetting, for thinking he was a normal person. 
I was so filled with shame and disgust that I wanted to put my neck under the circular saw, cut through my throat, and die. But because this all originated with me being unable to use a circular saw, that wouldn't have worked out anyway, so instead I cried. These do-it-yourself floating shelves are feeling much less simple than the internet said they would be. Oh my God. I am speechless. I am fucking speechless. That is... Oh my God. I just, I don't even have words. I don't even have words. But thank you for for sharing that and all its fucked upness. And I really, really hope that you're getting some kind of healing now that that awful memory is, is on your radar. This is uh, from the love survey filled out by Just Coffee. And they write, I love coffee in the early morning as the sun, chickens, and other critters start to wake up with the sun and come alive. I love my dog, Sadie. I love talking to her, believing she truly understands me, but knowing she's responding to my tone of voice. I love how my current boyfriend spoils me with home-cooked meals and random messages. And I love knowing the ocean doesn't give a fuck and is still awesome. That's a great one. Yeah, I think about that when I look at the ocean sometimes, like, God, you are such a fucking beast, and yet you're so beautiful. This is a shame and secret secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself mental health addict. She identifies as demisexual. Uh, she writes, since I have never felt sexual attraction to anyone, but I, but I have a lot of sexual fantasies and love to masturbate, so I think I might develop sexual attraction when I get to know someone deeply enough. Uh, she is 18, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, um, been mo- emotionally abused. My mother frequently used me as an outlet for anything happening in her life, and I had to listen to her mood swings. When I didn't give her my full attention and agreement, she would call me a cold-hearted child that did not love her and was disappointing her. She then ignored me when I tried to talk to her and completely withdrew her love. Only when I apologized and told her how right she was did she come back to me and tell me that she loved me. We only ever talked about her and how awful my father was to her. And then parentheses, which wasn't really true. Any positive experiences with them? I still love her, and we have moments where we laugh a lot about funny stuff that happens to her or we cook together. This really complicates my feelings for her because it's like she's two-faced from Batman, and I shouldn't let her run all over me, but I still endure it without saying anything so that she shows me at least some form of love every once in a while darkest thoughts. My brother hasn't left the house in three years and only leaves his room to eat twice a day and only when almost forced. I'm the only person he really wants to talk to and we have a lot of fun talking when he lets me in his room. I've become the one that everyone needs. My brother needs a lifeline, my parents a connection to him, and social service workers, someone that can try to explain how he feels and why he acts the way he does. And of course, I want him to find a way to get out into the world again, but another part of me doesn't because I fear there is no way other people will want me around or love me as much as they do now because they won't need me anymore. And being the helper and the one that always listens to everyone and can help has become my role. 
I also frequently think about the fact that nothing truly horrible has happened to me. Oh, what are you talking about? You grew up with a fucking complete narcissist for a mom. Uh, I still feel hopeless and sad sometimes, and I sometimes even wish for bad things to happen to justify my feelings and also to get people to show me attention and fulfill my needs. And that really grosses me out and makes me feel like a little mini Satan. I should be more grateful for how easy my life is in comparison to others, but I feel the way I feel, and I'm working hard on being okay with that and even loving it because it's part of me. That's so awesome that you are finally finally starting to have some compassion for yourself and i mean that first part you know where you're rating you know uh, talking about how how you rag on yourself i mean that is your mom's fucking voice that is just programming that you are selfish and all the all the things your mom projected onto you Darkest secrets. I've often lied when it comes to sex. I've had sex with ex-boyfriends and other guys just to get over with and so that they would stay and think of me, think well of me, or to get out of an otherwise uncomfortable situation. But I have never felt attraction and never got wet because of them, but because friction eventually causes your vagina to lubricate or I used a moment when they went to the bathroom to quickly masturbate to get wet. I have always faked orgasms with every single one of them. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, lesbian, especially mother and daughter. Also hardcore sex bordering on rape. It makes me feel ashamed and confused. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my mother how much she has hurt me, but every time I try to, she blocks me or doesn't listen or makes it all about her again. I think that would enable me to finally stop lying to her about my true opinions on anything and on who I am. I could finally be myself around her. Well, you know what I think would be really important would be for you to just start speaking your truth out loud, whether it's to your mom and if it is to her, regardless of what her reaction is going to be. And from what you've described of her, her reaction is not going to be what is not going to be positive and compassionate. She sounds like a really sick person, um, but that shouldn't stop you from speaking your your truth. Um, and I hope you can find somebody safe to begin to share that stuff with and to begin to 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 feel seen. I mean, there is to feel invisible and empty and to not know whether we're lovable or not, that is a prison. It is a fucking prison. What, if anything, do you wish for? A fulfilled life with my family, uh, with my family well and close to me. Have you shared these things with others? I shared my feelings about my mother with the therapist and my father, who tried to be understanding, but it didn't really help. Now I am on the journey of finding a new therapist who can help me deal with this a little better. How do you feel after writing these things down? Relieved and exhausted. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You're not alone. Everything you're going through is your perfect journey, even if it doesn't always feel that way. Thank you for that. This is from the love survey filled out by Augie. And they write, I love the way trees seem to reach for each other above a back road on a sunny day. 
I love the look in my husband's eye when I'm slap happy and just can't stop laughing at nothing. You'd think he'd look at me like I was crazy, but all I see is love and happiness. I love being so devoured by a good book. And then once it's finished and I'm kind of sad it's over, I realize there's another two or three in the series. That is a great one. I love when a restaurant I haven't been to before has good ranch fries. I love being able to make someone genuinely laugh. I love the look on someone's face after they scare you. I love when someone does something small and seemingly meaningless to make you realize that they like you more than you think they did, like they were actively thinking about you. I love when my dogs lay their head on a pillow like a human. I love comfortable silences. I love the feeling of having all the laundry washed and folded and put away. It's one of the things I struggle doing while my depression is hitting me hard. Clean clothes just pile up in laundry baskets in the corner, forever wrinkled, forever just sitting there. And I love being able to find that one tiny thing in common with a coworker who you thought had nothing in common with you. Those are awesome. Thank you for those. This is a happy moment filled out by Felix, and they write, uh, walking the New Orleans Zoo with my three little ones on a beautiful spring morning. I drove the five hours by myself, and that was a huge accomplishment for my anxiety. Then navigated the city with them, which is also huge. I was really proud of myself, and we had a blast. Fucking love that. Love it. Well then, Paul, why don't you marry it? I'm in the process of that. I'm having our our vows drawn up, but I, there aren't any existing vows for a human being marrying a survey. And finally, this is an awful moment filled out by Tired Dog Mama. And she writes, Last year, my boyfriend and I rented a condo in the mountains for a weekend getaway. We'd only been dating a couple of months and had never taken a trip together. We got to the rental unit after the office had closed, so we picked up the envelope with our keys and headed over to the condo. I let myself and my dog in, set my stuff on a table, phone, wallet, keys, and opened the garage door for my boyfriend to drive in. I shut the door between the garage and the building so my dog couldn't run out and started helping my boyfriend unload the car. We were ready to start bringing stuff in when we realized the door was locked. Turns out the door from the garage to the unit locks automatically, and guess who left all three keys on the table inside? I have severe anxiety and a history of verbally abusive relationships, so this sent me inwardly spiraling in a panic that A, my dog would die, and B, this would lead to a horrible fight that would ruin the weekend and maybe the relationship. It was all I could do to not start crying and over-apologizing immediately. I borrowed his phone to call the night manager who wasn't picking up, so I then began calling all of the property in the area that his particular rental agency also owned. There was one door in the unit that was 100% glass, and my poor, lonely, anxiety-prone dog was just standing, staring at me the whole time I was on the phone. I think what was going through her head was, Mom, 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 please don't leave me here alone, Mom. I finally got in touch with someone helpful who said they'd send someone over. I went to tell my boyfriend the good news, but when I walked into the garage, I saw him holding a hunting knife and a gift card standing next to the open door. 
My Eagle Scout, cool as a cucumber boyfriend, had simply examined the door and noticed it would be super easy to open from the outside. I had to call the helpful woman back and pretend like I realized I had a key and that we totally hadn't just broken into their condo. That incident wasn't the only misadventure of the weekend, but we handled everything that happened as a team, which was new and healing for me. I'm still dating this man, and I love him more every day. So great. So great. I thought that was going to take a turn for the worse. You went in there, and your boyfriend's got a hunting knife. I was like, oh, this this is not good. You know, all those positive stories where you come upon someone holding... <laughs> A hunting knife. But thank you for that. And thank you, everybody that filled out the surveys. Thanks uh, to Zoe for a a really great conversation and all the the work that she's doing for comedians in need. And if you're out there and you're struggling, uh, just never forget that that you you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.